Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 92 for the week ending Monday, January 23rd, 2017. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. Later on in the show, I'll be chatting with Catherine Liu. Now, Catherine is head of digital disruption at Barclays Africa Group Limited. And we had an interesting conversation about what is fixing to be an exciting year for fintech on the continent. You definitely want to stick around for that. But before we get to that, we'll cover the week's biggest headlines, which include the Kenyan government launching an ambitious digital skills training program, Nigeria's central bank warning against the use of virtual currencies like Bitcoin, Ripples, Monero, and others, and Africa's biggest tech company, Naspers, betting $100 million on an American mobile classifieds app. That's all coming up, but before we get into it, let's do this. This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by GoDaddy. Now, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and most importantly, affordable. Now, they're the world's largest domain registrar, and they're trusted by over 13 million customers all around the world. They provide everything you need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, to save 30% on a new domain name or to use any of their other services, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. That's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech to save yourself 30%. So the team and I at the African Tech Roundup would like to thank all of you listeners out there who share and retweet links to this podcast on social media. We're really humbled at the reach we're achieving with this platform. And it's all because of you and the unstoppable network effect that you've helped us set in motion. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now we do want to ask you to do one small thing to help us reach even more people with this podcast. Um, And that's by helping us rank nice and high on iTunes. Now, all you have to do is leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Now, you have no idea how much it means to the team when we get even one line from you saying why you dig the podcast. And more importantly, what that does uh, to make us more visible to potential listeners around the world. And that's that's really all we're asking you to do. Uh, Please just rate us uh, on, uh, on iTunes. Hopefully, you give us five big ones and a quick line about why you love the podcast so that... Um, people who might not otherwise find out about the show do. Yeah? So thanks again. Uh, And now it's on to this week's news headlines. First up, the Econet Global subsidiary Liquid Telecoms has secured regulatory approval for two major deals on the continent. Now, the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa, ICASA, has given them the go-ahead to purchase the South African communications network operator, Neotel, for nearly $483 million. Now, this deal has been in the making for a while. It was announced, and I think it was October 2016 or there and thereabouts, uh, Liquid Telecoms landed approval from South Africa's Competition Commission, uh, you know, to allow them to buy uh, Neotel. And so getting the, the nod from ICASA was the last regulatory hurdle they needed to clear. Liquid Telecoms will now hold a majority stake in Neotel, with 30% of the company being held by the South African investment group Royal Buffalo Gang Holdings. Liquid Telecom will no doubt be looking forward to leveraging Neotel's significant network assets and service platforms in Eastern, Central, and Southern Africa. Now, they're claiming that this will enable them to offer access via a single connection to over 40,000 kilometers of cross-border, national, and metro fiber networks across no less than 12 countries. And so that's the first major deal that Liquid Telecom has managed to get 
gets signed off at the top of 2017. They've also recently secured regulatory clearance from the Tanzania Communications Regulatory Authority, TCRA, uh, to acquire the Tanzanian ISP Raha. Now, Raha currently provides connectivity solutions, including fiber, satellite, WiMAX, and Wi-Fi, to retail and enterprise customers spread across 150-odd locations in TZ, including Arusha, Moshi, Mwanza, Mbeya, and Tanga. So Liquid Telecom definitely getting 2017 off to a great start with these two deals in the bag. To Ethiopia next now, where the Ethiopian IT talent marketplace, Gebea, is set to launch in Kenya. And why Kenya, you ask? Well, according to the startup's co-founder and CEO, Amadou Dafi, uh, they're hoping to take advantage of Kenya's relatively high level of internet penetration, as well as the country's growing technology industry. Now, the startup is backed by the New Jersey-based Coders for Africa outfit. And through Gebea, they aim to help IT professionals market their skills and expertise to businesses that need them at top market rates. Now, now Ethiopia is said to be the headquarters for the IT Academy Training Hub, and the plan is to graduate 5,000 students in the next five years. Nairobi, however, hosts the Sub-Saharan African Headquarters for a significant number of Fortune 500 companies. And so moving into Kenya should provide Gebea opportunities to accelerate customer acquisition and target clients in other parts of the continent. So Gebea is no doubt hoping to put African coding talent on the map globally. And along with the likes of Andela and Tunga.io, they're probably planning to capitalize on the global shortage of skilled IT pros and do this by reducing IT development and operations costs for various clients around the world. We wish them all the best, certainly. Staying with news out of Kenya, the government there has begun an ambitious digital skills training program that aims to enable one million young people to secure freelance online work within the next year. Now, according to the World Bank, Kenya has the highest rate of youth joblessness in East Africa, with 17% of all young people eligible for work currently uh, not having a job. So Tanzania and Uganda apparently fare better with uh, rates of uh, 5.5 and 6.8% respectively. Look, I often question how reliable such statistics are, given what we know about uh, the estimated size of Africa's informal economic activity. Now, uh, in a country like Kenya, where informal entrepreneurship is part of the very fabric of society, it's quite easy to underestimate just how many youth are gainfully self-employed. That said, there are now an estimated 40,000 Kenyans who have secured work online, ranging from transcription services to software development uh, on sites like Amazon's Mturk and uh, the Kenyan-owned Hustle platform. Uh, and so the government uh, wants this trend to grow. The country's Minister for Information, Communication and Technology is quite bullish on the new partly government-funded program, uh, which is called Ajira. Now, the plan is to send mentors across the nation to train young people, provide internet connectivity for free via Wi-Fi, as well as manage an online registration platform. And while I'm cautiously hopeful that this initiative will be a huge success, uh, we would all do well not to underestimate Kenya, which according to the Communications Authority of Kenya boasts an internet penetration rate of about 85.3%. Now that's pretty high compared to the continental average of just 28.7%. Now it's worth mentioning too that Kenya's national electrification campaign is taking less than half the time it took America to light up. And uh, so Kenya added 1.3 million households to its electricity grid in 2016, uh, raising the percentage of connected Kenyans to 55% from just 27% back in 2013. Now, within four years, Kenya aims to connect something like 95% of the country's households uh, to the national grid. Now, I'm certainly rooting for Kenya and hoping that they reach their targets, both in terms of youth employment as well as electrification.
And staying with East African news, MasterCard made headlines last week for launching a digital marketplace platform they're calling Tukuze. It connects smallholder farmers, agents, buyers, and banks in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. And what it does is enable farmers to buy, sell, and receive payments for agricultural products via their feature phones. The platform is a result of a collaboration between MasterCard and the Cafe Direct Producers Foundation, which works with 300,000 smallholder farmers around the world. Now, with Tukuze, the aim is to help farmers sell their produce to the right buyers more quickly and efficiently at the best possible prices. And according to MasterCard's Daniel Monaghan, uh, 80% of farmers in Africa are classified as smallholder farmers that work less than one to two acres of farmland. And that makes it extremely difficult to drive meaningful growth and prosperity. Now, Monaghan also heads up MasterCard's financial inclusion for international markets. And I have to say that Tukuze does uh, seem rather promising. Now, I'm sure the folks over at SAP who I'm aware are busy working on solutions for Africa's agricultural sector. We'll be watching the progress of this new platform to see what they can learn. And so really early in the year, it's fun to observe a trend developing uh, towards the growth in, in agritech concepts that quite a few respected voices we had on the show last year anticipated would come to the fore in 2017. To Nigeria now, where the country's central bank, the CBN, has warned against the use of virtual currencies like Bitcoin, Ripples, Monero, and others. Now, in a recent circular, the CBN reminded financial institutions that cryptocurrencies are not legal tender in Nigeria, and that banks that trade and exchange digital currencies do so at their own risk. Now, this announcement follows a similar warning made by the People's Bank of China earlier this month about the risks of trading in Bitcoin. Now, that announcement did a lot to erode the market's confidence in Bitcoin and led to a sharp dip in value. Now, as we know, in the last year, Bitcoin pretty much outperformed every major currency on the planet. Nevertheless, the CBN has said that they're looking to curb money laundering and uh, they say they're acting in the interest of national security. But I reckon it's more a matter of capital control, uh, especially when you consider the country's dollar shortage uh, and uh, the uptick in Nigerians using Bitcoin and other virtual currencies as a means to access foreign exchange. But with countries like Tunisia digitizing their national currencies using blockchain technology, and uh, other countries like Senegal set to do the same this year, I reckon the CBN will need to figure out a way to embrace uh, virtual currency. And now for some international news to Korea first, where Samsung's corporate leadership scandal has taken the shine right off the company's surprisingly awesome financial results that were published not too long ago. It appears that an elaborate plan to make permanent the tenure of the company's chief executive, J.Y. Lee, through a complex shimmy of, uh, I have to say, shady backdoor transactions, well, that's been foiled. As prosecutors seek to arrest Lee on allegations of bribery and embezzlement, the question of who would take charge of this massive family business in his absence remains unanswered because the natural successor to the throne, as it were, would be Lee's sister, the hotel executive at Samsung, whose name is Lee Bujin. Now, that's not likely to happen because of the prevailing patriarchal culture that governs big family empires in Korea. But also, having one of the company's sitting divisional executives take over would not be ideal uh, from the standpoint of trying to keep things in the family. And so this is turning into a fascinating soap opera of uh, the bold and the beautiful proportions. Then, of course, if Lee was convicted, he'd be following in the footsteps of his dad, who landed not just one, but two criminal convictions. Then there's the possible implication of South Korea's president in one of the scandals he's being accused of. And then there's the fact that apparently it's quite common to have uh, executives of these uh, huge family-owned empires in Korea 
continue to manage company affairs from jail, uh, whether it be via lawyers or secretaries visiting them and that kind of thing. But you can imagine the scandal that would ensue if a Korean company with an international profile as big as Samsung's would do that. And, you know, I think stories like this just serve to remind the world that the developing world doesn't have a monopoly on dodgy business practices. eh? So, um, yeah, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out on what goes down at Samsung in Korea. To the U.S. now, where Naspers is betting $100 million on an American mobile classifieds app called LetGo. LetGo plans to gear up to take on Craigslist and eBay in what has to be one of the most hotly contested classifieds markets in the world. Now, LetGo's founder, Alec Oxenford, also happens to be one of the co-founders of OLX. In fact, Oxenford is still chairman of OLX, uh, which is an impressive business that uh, boasts over 240 million users in emerging markets like India, Brazil, Poland, as well as major markets on the continent like Nigeria and South Africa. Now, the big idea is to leverage Oxenford's uh, experience in the online classified space to take on America's heavies in the space. Uh, He reckons that there's complacency as far as innovation is concerned uh, within America's classifieds industry, particularly in terms of mobile offerings. And he reckons that because his company is, quote, fun and easy to use, uh, they will compete favorably. And so to date, it's been reported that LetGo users have posted more than 500,000 listings and exchanged nearly 3 million messages since February 2015 in deals grossing over $25 million. And as far as these deals, I mean, we're talking things like bicycles, furniture, apparel, cars, and so on. And so I guess the big unanswered question is how LetGo plans to monetize their success, because up to now, the app remains totally free and uh, cash doesn't actually pass through the app because transactions are done outside of it. And so, of course, while they haven't disclosed their business model going forward, I reckon they'll think of something. To India next, where the largest mobile telco, Bharti Airtel, uh, plans to sell some of its businesses in Africa over the next year. Now, speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, the company's chairman, Sunil Bharti Mittal, has said that businesses in at least 15 African nations will be affected. Now, the company is said to be looking for ways to reduce its debt load. That's currently sitting at around 12 billion dollars, as well as um, looking to consolidate market leadership in India, where an escalating price war is on the go following new entrants in that country's mobile network sector. So Bharti Airtel has already sold its Sierra Leone and Burkina Faso operations, as well as some of its tower businesses. Now, Bharti's African unit lost $91 million in the quarter ending September 2016, um, which is a pretty good improvement uh, on the $170 million loss uh, they made in 2015. And so given the the progress they're making to to reduce what they're losing, I am fully bracing for some very painful bloodletting to go down this year as far as Barty's investments on the continent are concerned. Finally, uh, it's easily one of the biggest international tech stories of the past week, and it involves the German tech holdings firm Rocket Internet, which has raised $1 billion for its latest investment fund, uh, which is called the Rocket Internet Capital Partners Fund. They've done this despite the sketchy performance of many of their portfolio investments, which include the struggling pan-African e-commerce giant, Jumia. Now, Rocket Internet is claiming that this is the biggest tech fund of any VC firm in Europe, 
and um, investors are no doubt hopeful that Rocket will be able to replicate enough big deals like the ones they've had in the past uh, with uh, sales being made to to Groupon and eBay and others. I have to say, those are the kind of uh, big deals that have offset the weak performance of some of their other investments. And so this new fund will reportedly focus on both early and later stage investments, uh, an approach which is somewhat a departure from Rocket Internet's uh, past MO. While we should continue to expect further investments to be made in existing portfolio companies, many of them, of course, being clones of more successful e-commerce incumbents, uh, the company plans to make more investments in startups beyond those that they had a hand in, in actually launching. What does remain to be seen, though, is just how much of that investment will make its way to Africa to continue propping up Jumia and or investing in other promising startups here on the continent. We'll definitely be keeping a close eye on Rocket Internet's moves as far as that's concerned. And so now, as promised, I'm about to play you a snippet from a chat I had with Catherine Liu. Uh, she's head of digital disruption at Barclays Africa. And so in this conversation, um, among other things, I asked Catherine to give me a sense of how big financial services incumbents like Barclays Africa are responding to the many, many technological innovations that are threatening their dominance. Take a listen. I'm Catherine Liu. I'm head of digital disruption at Barclays Africa, focused on Kenya. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup. Thank you so much for having me. And I believe your role has somewhat evolved in the last few months. Am I right? Uh, that's right, actually. So I've gone from a very interesting role working with our multiple, multitude of countries across the continent to really focusing on Kenya, which is obviously, as you know, a fascinating market for fintech right now. Uh, I, I'm always on about how Africa is not a country, and um, I suppose uh, your, your, your change in role speaks to that fact. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it's really good, for, I mean, for me personally, really interested in getting much more in-depth with Kenya, although it has obviously been fascinating to see mobile money, for example, as it evolves across East Africa and West Africa in slightly different ways. And so some really big fintech stories breaking in the last few months, um, just to name a few, uh, the non-for-profit currency scheme, Stella, you know, backed by Stripe, uh, roping in quite a few, you know, biggies around the world, uh, you know, leveraging blockchain technology uh, in, you know, in, in some of the largest remittance markets in the world, including at least three or four in, you know, on the continent. Uh, Standard Bank acquiring Firepay, you know, the company behind SnapScan, um, the payments app, George, the George Soros-based VC, LeapFrog raising uh, on, on its way to raising $800 million uh, worth of investment uh, specifically for, you know, the finance market in, in Africa. Um, Paystack closing a $1.3 million seed investment round uh, involving really big uh, participants like Tencent. Uh, some Francophone countries are inducting national e-currencies. <sighs> I'm out of breath. But um, just to name some, I mean, it's been a crazy, you know, couple of months. Uh, but what's the biggest trend uh, you're observing from your vantage point at Barclays Africa as far as fintech is concerned, number one. And number two, what are you most excited about at a personal level? <laughs> That's a really great question. And I, do I have to limit myself to one? No, absolutely. Come on. The, the t t we've got enough tape for, for many more. So go, go nuts. <laughs> absolutely. So I think a lot of people have been excited about blockchain and particularly how that can enable some um, international transactions in a more secure way. Um, so I think actually on a corporate side, I don't know if you know this, we were recently one of the, the first to partner with Wave, which is an Israeli startup, to do a contract transfer from the UK and to one of our African markets. You guys actually made a headline on our show. So, yeah, you, <laughs> well done to you. Um, so, so, obviously, exploring some of the different uses of blockchain beyond 
just payments and um, potentially, for example, in property and how, how that can be used to, for example, in insurance. Those are really interesting things. But I think within um, East Africa, for example, while remittances have obviously been hot, um, we're starting to see some interesting trends in terms of automation as well as in terms of... Um, peer and group financing. So, I mean, obviously our competitors, Equity, I already spoke them, um, have recently released more solutions for people who are in Chalmers, which are your unofficial or official savings groups. Um, there's an interesting startup called Possessia. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Uh, no. Um, so they're actually offering peer-to-peer um, -peer lending where I, as a consumer, can then lend money to local SMEs, which is a really interesting thing. So we're seeing the nature of financing changing, which is being enabled through technology, which is really fascinating. Um, so actually, it's interesting that you raised the, um, the recent SnapScan deal, because I think the way that uh, payments, particularly to merchants, are evolving in East Africa is going to be slightly different, because the uptake of the QR code is not so high, right? Although we are seeing, of course, M-Visa is looking at coming into the market. Um, but you're also going to be seeing more ways of automating from the mobile wallet, which is going to be also an interesting challenge for, the bank, for us banks in the uh, payment space. Okay, so, and then at a personal level, you must have like a, you know, a, a pit, a pit, not preference, but a, a, a pit trend that uh, you're tracking on a personal level that excites you, gets you up in the morning. Whether or not, you know, Barclays Africa is, is, is sort of, uh, you know, launching headfirst in, into that trend or not, uh, what's on your, what's top of mind for you? What's exciting you? Sure. Um, so actually what I'm really interested in is something I like to call contextual banking. Uh, let me go into a bit of detail because this encompasses a few different things. So I'm a, I'm a bit of a consumer insights nut. I like to try and spend as much time with customers as possible. And so what we're really finding is the successful financial companies are going into the spaces where their consumers are offering the services there. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, I think previously... Uh, let's take the example of brands marketing themselves through social media. Previously, they, could, they were out in public spaces and they were in the, sp the brand space that they felt comfortable in. But with the advent of social media, they had to start coming into spaces that people were regularly surfing online and trying to figure out how to engage there. And we're seeing a similar shift in terms of financial services. So why should I have to come to your branch when I can do it on an app? Or if, well, if I can do things while I'm supermarket shopping or if, say, I can get a loan the moment that I need it, as opposed to having to go and apply for it somewhere else. So, Isn't part of the challenge around that um, all the different interests that are now involved in, you know, in, in mobile money and fintech in general, many of them non-traditional uh, finance players, and everybody trying to create uh, an ecosystem that, you know, you know, shuts out everyone else, the sort of uh, incentive for everyone to play nice and create this... Um, unbroken, seamless uh, experience for the end user isn't quite there yet. How, how do you think this is going to evolve in time? Are you guys all just going to be, become friends and, and sing Kumbaya? <laughs> what, do, what should we expect? Um, well, obviously, strategic partnerships will play a big part in that. And that, that is partly why we run the RISE program and try to work with startups even outside of that. So we are constantly looking for where are our customers and how can we better serve them within their lives so that they don't have to come to us. I think that's the essence of my job, actually. Strategically, are you guys driven more by a, a, a spirit of paranoia 
or, or, or proactivity. I mean, there's no doubt that as a massive legacy player on the continent and around the world, you guys, I suppose Barclays Africa being on the continent, but being part of a larger sort of group, uh, you guys are, are basically marked, <laughs> um, either marked for uh, takedown or marked for, uh, you know, partnership. You know, so how how does that play into the you know your strat your strategic uh, um, discussions uh, in the in the halls of, of Barclays Africa? Sure. I mean, in terms of proactive versus reactive, I mean, you've spoken to a few other members of our technology teams before. I mean, there's been a massive cultural shift internally, um, particularly driven. I mean, we have great hubs both in London as well as in Johannesburg and Cape Town, where we've really been pushing ourselves to get in people who are from the startup world, who are from the advertising and design world. And we're trying to shift that culture and say, hey, let's not just react when new trends are coming up, because we can't afford to do that anymore, right? Um, so, I mean, we're constantly trying to get that intersection of what is the cool technology stuff but that also drives business and that also serves our customers because when, not to be cliche, but when our customers do well, we do well. So let's offer them something which is cool and offers them value. And so a little bit about you yourself now. I mean, we were talking off mic about the, you know, the, the nature of your role and, and how on some level it involves, uh, you know, uh, being on the pulse of what the market needs and, and responding to that effectively, as well as massaging what I'd imagine to be a massive amount of uh, good ideas, legacy products, um, things you've invested in and have targeted for your market and, 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 and sort of have presupposed the market needs. And, and I know it's a big part of your job to make sure they work out. <laughs> Sometimes I'm sure it's a lot easier than, than some products work out a lot better than others. But talk me through how your career has evolved in terms of your role in responding to, you know, the corporate, uh, your corporate efforts to massage products into the market as well as develop them internally for, you know, for a, cha for a fastly changing environment. Sure. So That's a mouthful, but I'm trying to get it all in. Um, There's a few questions hiding in that question, but sure. So I, I think a little bit of background then on what I do, which feeds into, I think, the very complex nature of what you've just described. Um, so I actually have a little bit of unusual background. So I won my first job through a social media competition run by Standard Chartered. No flippin' way. <laughs> so um, I won the title of World's Coolest Intern and got myself a six-month internship with Standard Chartered in Singapore, which is global headquarters, particularly for tech. Um, and this is just fascinating, um, this being suddenly plunged into this world of, hey, how do we better serve our customers through apps and how do we drive that through these new media sources and what are these other new research methods that we can use to actually figure out what our customers are thinking? And so around that, we're doing, you know, piloting new methods of um, getting customer feedback. Um, and this was relatively new space for a bank at the time. And um, But coming out of that... I guess realized that the skill set that you need to, like you said, take those products, massage them, make sure that they land successfully in the market, um, you, you need to build up a kind of specialist expertise in that. So I've also been in advertising, also been in startups actually testing products. And so saying, how do we go from zero to a pretty much complete product uh, in, let's say, a month and a half? So I think coming out of those really intense experiences has been really great feed-in to come and work at Barclays and take on these challenges. And so how long have you been on the continent uh, in, in your current role, or at least in the role that's led to you becoming uh, 
uh, a Kenya-specific uh, resource? Sure. So I've been in Barclays Africa for about one and a bit years now. Uh, but actually, before that, I was already based in Kenya. So it was already, I think I'd done about 100 plus different interviews with people um, in the education and technology space for a startup. Um, and I just love getting to sit down face to face with somebody and get to understand their lives and get to understand how I can help them. What would you say is the most commonly misunderstood um, thing about uh, tech and innovation in, uh, and perhaps fintech in general? Um, I mean, you, as you obviously have an outsider's perspective. Maybe you can tell us about some of uh, the misconceptions you had coming in and how they got debunked and what you commonly see uh, come up time and time again from, from outsiders making assumptions about the continent and maybe Kenya specifically. Oh, so you're talking about African fintech specifically? Yeah, so African fintech, the tech scene in general, Kenya specifically, whatever sort of, what are some of the more recurring uh, misconceptions that you've encountered? Perhaps some you've had yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, to your point earlier, the fact that fact people, a lot of people think Africa is a country and therefore everything may, might operate is interoperable, that customer behaviors are the same, that even the services are the same. So to me, it's been really interesting to watch, for example, I mean, in Kenya, you have this monopoly of mobile money with Safaricom opening about 70 plus percent of the market. Uh, whereas in Tanzania, it's very fragmented. You've got about five different players, including some who were even from Vietnam with Halo Pay. Um, and then in Ghana, with more of investment coming up, so they're starting to pay in, uh, interest on their uh, mobile money balances. So I think there's been this assumption, for example, that mobile money will evolve in exactly the same way in different markets, when that may not be the case. I mean, you have some applicability of different features, obviously. Everyone wants to be able to pay school fees really easily, but um, those behaviors are going to change. So I think that'll be really fascinating to watch over the next couple of years as well. So there's the two schools of thought around this massive $800 million investment that uh, LeapFrog is looking to, to, to funnel into you know, Africa's uh, finance scene. Um, George Soros famously backing that particular uh, VC uh, venture. Um, tell me about some of the things that you would be cautiously optimistic about when you hear what, some of the things that you're cautiously optimistic about when you hear about when you, when you, when headlines like that surface and what are some of the things you're just out and out bullish and excited about when you hear about those kind of investments? And I think you're, you're, you're perfectly placed given, you know, the scale at which sort of Barclays Africa operates. So you're not freaked out by big numbers, I'm sure, but at the same time, I'm, I'm sure you, you guys have, have both experienced uh, big, massive success as well as uh, like uh, the kind of maybe uh, setbacks that might sink much smaller players. So given that context, like what, what do you make of, of news like this? Uh, there's always a lot of debates about how you spend money in Africa and where and how you divide it up, especially. I mean, which, what are you going to be your focus markets, for example? So when people say they're putting money into Africa, there's always obviously that question mark of, where in Africa? How in Africa? We've seen even WeChat coming in quite strongly into South Africa, and then what are the results that they're getting out of that? Um, and so when you see a number like that, you immediately want to dive into the details and say, okay, well, what is the impact and where is that going to be? Um, obviously, in East Africa, we see a lot more in terms of NGO money. So, for example, seeing the... Uh, as an example, MasterCard Labs. So they're funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and their mandate is in specifically to look into financial inclusion across East Africa, which is a lot more 
specific. Then you also have, um, there's a very interesting um, universal basic income experiment, actually a little bit outside of tech, um, that is being run in Western Kenya. Um, and that has actually been crowdfunded from across the world. I believe they reached their target within, I think, under a week of several million dollars, which is really, really interesting. But then you also think, okay, so is the result from one experiment in Western Kenya then going to cascade out across all of Kenya, let alone, hey, having an impact across Africa. So there's a few things we, we need to look out for. And so Tommy Davies is uh, one of the Africa's more prominent angel investors and, uh, uh, and voices, and he, he expects a bubble to burst sometime soon. Now, uh, at a personal level, I don't see that we, we have the crisis um, the looming crisis that I, I see blooming in a place like, say, Silicon Valley because of, you know, these massive valuations that aren't driven by, by you know, sort of r what I'd call real metrics, you know, revenue and, and growth and profitability, for example. Um, wh what do you make of, what, do you make of uh, what could potentially be a bubble developing around maybe an over-enthusiasm or perhaps a, a carelessness around the approach to investing in Africa? What, what, do, you, what do you sense in that? And, and I, I feel like asking someone who works at Barclays Africa is a good person to ask because you get up in the morning uh, and, and, and the, you know, the, the math has to make sense. You know? Whereas um, Kenya's often been, you know, the, the, the investment scene in Kenya's often been um, criticized for being a little too NGO heavy or grant money or flush with grant money. Um, and so, yeah, given all that, what, what do you make of the, the notion that we might be building or, or, or setting ourselves up for a bubble burst? Um, sure. I think, I think my first caution in terms of overseas investors is that the way you invest in, in Africa, if I can generalize, um, has to be different because the term, time, type of exit that you're looking at is different. Obviously, I'm not a venture capitalist, so um, I can't get into the details there. But uh, for us in Barclays, I mean, when we're... We are often uh, talking to startups for different partnerships or to be part of some of our incubation programs. Um, and I think I agree, yes, the, the funding in Kenya does tend to be more NGO-focused, so there's a lot that tends to be in terms of financial inclusion. But this that will tend to exclude some of the more exciting as well startups that are coming up and not I mean some of those could have an impact in finance even if they're not dedicated to finance um, so we see some exciting opportunities um, obviously we get approached by quite a few different startups so we see a different level of preparedness of those startups to start working with international organizations like ourselves and obviously therefore to to gain capital from other sources. So um, sometimes we get in startups who don't really know their market, don't really know how they're going to monetize, don't really know how uh, they're going to provide value in a partnership with us. And so I think personally, I love having a chat with these startups and saying, hey, this is how you can improve your pitch for next time. Um, but th so there's this varied readiness, I suppose, within the market. And so, you know, Barclays Africa seems to have embraced the whole blockchain technology um, wave. What do you think is making it harder for, for other, um, you know, legacy institutions to, to be as embracing, do you think, in terms of, uh, uh, and perhaps you're, you're at the, at, you, you have eyes on where 
um, the adoption of blockchain technology could make the most impact in a developing market like Kenya, and uh, perhaps it makes total sense to you in a way that it might uh, you know, qu not quite land to someone sitting maybe in Singapore or wherever else you know, some of these major institutions are, are housed. What is it about blockchain technology that um, seems to be hard to sort of grasp and embrace for, for legacy institutions, do you think? Sure. I think some of the biggest barriers for blockchain is first in terms of actually understanding it, because obviously in a larger organization, you have a lot of people with different expertise, and it's not necessarily their day job to stay on top of understanding the latest technology. So really getting an understanding across the organization of what blockchain is, how it works, and some of the different applications and making it real. And obviously uh, within Africa, some of those applications are going to be very, very different. The problems are going to be different that we're solving to someone who is in Singapore or who is in London. So in that sense, I mean, banks in particular have previously liked to refer to other banks and say, okay, what are they doing? And then how do we do that or do it better? Um, so having that lack of uh, precedent makes it challenging for people to get their head around, especially if you're talking about, okay, how do we <coughs> excuse me, evaluate, say, the risks of getting into this space, the legal implications, and how that spans across markets. So I think um, that education, having the culture to really drive that across the entire organization, um, and then understanding how, how to implement it and make, ensure that you are actually solving problems and not just doing something for the sake of doing something. I'd like to thank Catherine Liu for taking the time out to be with us on the show. The rest of that conversation is well worth checking out, and you can find it right now on africantechroundup.com. And by all means, be sure to follow Catherine on Twitter at Catherine Liu. And so one more time, a big thank you to GoDaddy for sponsoring this episode of the African Tech Roundup. Now remember, you too can buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30% by going to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. And so that's it for this week. Do join me again next week on africantechroundup.com. In the meantime, do follow us on Twitter and Instagram at African Roundup. Uh, you can certainly give us a shout on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And of course, like us to keep yourself abreast of the biggest news headlines. If you're keen to have your voice heard, send us a voice note via email. The address is hello at africantechroundup.com. And with all that said, I'm Andy Masugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa. Thank you.